This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. For the past two years, the Missouri Arts Council has invited artists of all genres from around the state to apply to be one of their four featured artists each month. And that has given me a wonderful opportunity to chat with artists creating fabulous art, music, literature, dance and poetry from the boot heel to St. Joseph. And this week we are visiting with the December artists, a month behind schedule, I know, but better late than never. This month, we have a fascinating dancer in St. Louis, a muralist and fine artist in Hollister with a really personal story, and a photographer in Joplin. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to connect with the fourth artist, a musician in Kansas City, but we will end the show with a little bit of his music. I am holding firm on the No Booze, No Sugar January, so I shall be pairing this week's show with some fizzy water and a squeeze of lime. February feels a long way off. Let's head out. I first heard of the annual Dance Your PhD contest a couple of years ago and fell into the rabbit hole of videos of scientists explaining their work through dance. The contest has been around for 15 years, and if you've never watched any of the videos, then I definitely recommend checking them out, including the 2021 winner by three Finnish physicists wrapping their research of atmospheric molecular clusters. It's brilliant and hilariously improbable all at the same time. The 2022 competition doesn't close until January the 27th, so if you're interested, there is still time. But for my guest, Hickman High School graduate Eleanor Harrison, now a postdoctoral research fellow at Washington University, St. Louis, she didn't just dance her PhD in movement science. Her whole adult life has been a combination of movement and dance and neuroscience. In Eleanor's decade-plus dance career, she toured with musicals such as Chorus Line, Hello Dolly, Evita, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and she was also in the films Black Swan, Friends with Benefits and Every Little Step. She has danced for noted choreographers such as Carlos Orta and Nancy Meehan, and her own choreography has been performed by multiple dance companies. In 2014, she returned to Washington University to pursue a PhD, where she developed a new therapeutic technique which recognised that for people with Parkinson's disease and older adults, simply using their own voice and singing can improve their gait and help to prevent falls. It was a work for which she received a Grammy Museum grant from the Recording Academy. Eleanor is also a certified yoga instructor, once rode 4,000 miles across the United States to raise money for Habitat for Humanity, and says that what started for her as an obsession with mastering a technical art form has become a lifelong pursuit of using movement to tap into our primordial creative energy. Eleanor Harrison, thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule to tell us about your work. Thank you so much for having me. It is delightful to be on KOPN, one of my favorite radio stations growing up, and be uh, talking to you all the way in Columbia, Missouri. Fantastic. We love knowing where our fans are. Yes, and you've done an amazing job researching my background. Well done. (laughs) There's a lot of information out there. So it was like, how do I distill it all down? Because there's so much one could say. I want that as my new bio. (laughs) 
you are a graduate of one of our own high schools, of Hickman High School. So we should definitely start there. Were you dance, theatre, singing all the way at high school or were you already making space for your scientific interests? Yeah, so I loved math and science in high school, but definitely I was dancing all the time. I was a palm for a little while, but my real love was on stage doing the musicals with Marty Hook. He was a wonderful director, and I sang in all of his choirs. It was just a wonderful experience. Hickman celebrated the arts so beautifully, and I also played in the orchestra there. I had the best education there possible. I was so happy to be there. I think, yeah, just a shout out to the theatre and performing arts staff at Hickman High School. It is amazing how many graduates of Hickman High School go on to huge careers on Broadway, in the arts. I mean, Nick Cave, I had on the show a few months ago, the visual artist and sculptor. I mean, he's a Hickman High School graduate. Just incredible, the level of talent that they helped to foster at Hickman High School. It truly was a great place to grow up and to spend those early years. Proud graduate. Proud QP. Your undergraduate degree was in French Lit and Dance, and it wasn't until more than a decade later that you took up your PhD in movement science. What had you begun to notice during your dance career that made you want to explore that intersection of neurology and dance? Yeah. So my mom was a doctor, and I always looked up to her so much, and I had a lot of interest in healthcare, and I loved that she was always helping people. So that was a big part of my interest in science growing up. When I went to college, I chose Washington University because I thought that it would be a great place to prepare to go to medical school. Now, by the end of college, dance had really come to the fore, and I knew that I wanted to be a dancer. And during my time as a modern dancer in New York, I continued some of that scientific interest. So I studied yoga, I studied Pilates, I studied a variety of somatics and really learned a lot from this embodied experience. And some of it was bookish and some of it was really just being in the studio and experiencing how the body has its own knowledge to share. So during that time, I wonder, well, how is it that I'm going to share this and move the, take this to another step at some point? But I knew I wasn't quite ready for it. And I was still sort of developing my own personal practice, my own technique. But at some point, I happened upon this area of research that was exploring dance with people with neurological disorders. And that was like this big light bulb moment for me when I thought, aha, this is the thing I was looking for all of those years that really does find the intersection of the two interests that I have been, that have been tugging at each other for all of these years for me. So it was a great realization. And had you met somebody with Parkinson's disease? I mean, had you, had you seen any of that work in practice or it was just something that you read? It was just something that I read initially. And after that, I was touring through St. Louis and the director of this lab, Dr. Damon Earhart, she was the developer of the idea of tango for Parkinson's disease. And she had really made a name for herself as the person who had developed this idea originally, and it had taken off. So they had been publishing papers about tango for Parkinson's probably around the same time that Dance for PD in New York took off. And dance and singing or music interventions for Parkinson's are especially beneficial because 
Parkinson's affects part of the brain that is involved with rhythmic processing. So I met with her and she told me what her lab did. And that was like, oh my gosh, this is that, that was kind of the in for me into Parkinson's research. And I didn't know much about the disease at that time. I knew very little actually. And she said, well, you really, before you get a PhD, you should really figure out if you like research. So I went back to New York. I was still dancing, but I called some universities that seemed like they were doing Parkinson's research. And I met this wonderful man at Columbia University, Dr. Pietro Mazzoni, and he let me come and observe his patients and participate in his lab research. And that's that was really, he was the one who taught me a lot about Parkinson's originally. And then as soon as you open your eyes to that kind of thing, it seems like you hear more and more about it, right? Mm. So it's a very common disease. And of course, as we get older, more and more people that we know do have it. It's the second most common neurodegenerative disease, second to Alzheimer's. So it is quite common at this point. It is. I looked up the stats on that. Nearly one million people in the United States have Parkinson's. As you said, it's the second most common neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's. Men are one and a half times more likely to have Parkinson's than women. And even though it definitely increases with age, especially in the over 65s, 4% of people who are diagnosed are under the age of 50. And of course, everybody is very familiar with Michael J. Fox and, and his battle with Parkinson's disease. And and one of the things I'm curious about, I mean, most of us take walking for granted. We do it without thinking, but it's an incredibly complex process as proven by how challenging it has been for scientists to invent a two-legged robot which can walk. It's really <laughs> been very, very difficult. Why is walking so complicated, Eleanor? Well, if you think about it, we it's a full body process. It requires coordination, complex coordination of the lower and upper extremities. We walk with oppositional um, arm and leg movements. And then it's highly rhythmic, right? So there's this right left pattern of your footfalls that you don't think about, but it is actually this highly rhythmic activity. It is a bit cyclical as well. And then it requires a lot of balance, for instance, to stay upright and to maintain appropriate posture while you are doing this complex coordination activity. And it does, um, it is a very automatic movement. So we do not think about it until we have to think about it. And truly, we will all at some point experience some difficulty with walking. For people over 70, about 30% of people have gait impairment. So it is something that declines with age. And it is a huge um, source of joy to be able to walk through the world. And once you lose that ability, it becomes much more challenging to have an independent life. It has, it's more challenging to go about the world and to avoid falls. So it is a really useful thing to try to allow people to provide them means to continue walking freely for as long as possible. So as, as you said, using music to help coordination and gait has been around for a long time. But this idea of using someone's own voice, as you have been working on, is relatively new. Talk a little bit about what the difference is. Why is it that your own voice can improve the gait of people who have mobility issues? So this idea I stumbled upon really right when I started my PhD. I was learning about Parkinson's. As I told you, I knew very little about the disease, but I was in a meeting where we were kind of going over some of the basics. And I learned that people with Parkinson's have 
a common thing that occurs in about 50% of people with this disease is called freezing of gait. And this is the sensation that your feet are glued to the floor. So if you imagine that you're walking along, suddenly you're, you can't lift your foot and you are stuck, you're going to fall over. And that's also going to be a terrifying feeling. And we don't fully understand the pathology behind why some people develop this and some people don't. And there are some tools to help it, but there are a lot, they only work for some people. So I was listening to this and I made a comment, I was you know, trying to show that I, I can I can contribute to this conversation. <laughs> and so I made a comment, like, oh, this is, seems like my singing work that I've always done where you try to like get the sound out and project your voice forward, kind of throw the pitch forward. And so I was thinking, I wonder if that might help people get out of a freeze. And everyone kind of said like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. And so throughout that year, I started researching, well, is this even feasible? Wouldn't it be a little bit like a dual task? Maybe people wouldn't be able to do it. Nobody sings as much as me. Like maybe nobody's going to want to do it. So we did a little pilot study to see if it might help. We didn't really think we'd be able to see a freeze because freezing is very difficult to capture in the lab. So we were really just looking, well, can it help stabilize the gait rhythm at all? Or can it work in a similar way to music? And it turned out I was pretty surprised that people could do it at all. I thought it would just be challenging. Turned out that it was fine. People had no problem doing it. And it actually helped them go a little bit faster. And the really exciting thing was that it helped them reduce their gait variability. So this meant that they became more rhythmic, their steps became more even, and more even regular footfalls mean that you're less likely to fall, so you're more stable. So that was kind of this shocking finding, and I thought, well, maybe it's right, but maybe we should test it some more. <laughs> so then we tested it on about 250 people more, and we were like, wow, this really does work. <laughs> so you were kind of asking, though, what are the mechanisms behind why it might work? And that is something we are trying to figure out right now. We've actually just finished a study doing brain scans on people as they do this singing technique. So they're mentally or imagining singing in the fMRI brain scanner. And we are trying to figure out what part of the brain is really activating to allow them to do this because we know it works for improving walking. We don't fully understand why, if it's compensating through areas that are degenerated, or if it's using other areas such as the cerebellum to reinstate that rhythm. This is so exciting, particularly for all of us who are aging. All are. <laughs> I know. I had this vision of like walking down the trail in Colombia and just everybody singing as they're walking along to help them with their gait. That is my vision too. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it that while speech is often impaired with Parkinson's disease, singing is not? People can still sing. Why is that happening? You've really done your research. I'm so impressed. Uh, it is true. This has not been shown in many studies, but it has been shown enough times that I do believe there is something to it. And I think singing has some sort of preferential primordial space in our brains where we can remember songs better. You know that we've seen this time and time again, that lyrics are easier to remember when they're set to music. This is why we have nursery rhymes. This is how children learn how to speak. So there's something about music that does hold a preferential space in our brains. And I do think it's amazing that singing is preserved in this neurological disorder. And it's true of another basal ganglia disorder as well, Tourette's. In Tourette's, where 
beach is freezing up a little bit, people can use singing to help get through that. So why that is, we do not know, but it's a great tool to know about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing. I'm going to take the dogs out for a walk in a little while. I'm going to sing to myself and see <laughs> see how it yeah. goes. <laughs> it's so funny because I everyone who comes into the lab does nursery rhymes. We did Row, Row, Your Boat, for instance, and it was just easy because we didn't have to teach them the words. Everybody came in and they said, oh, yeah, I know Row, Row, Your Boat. And then people come back later for you know other studies or something and they say, you know, I don't do Row, Row, Your Boat. I do this song. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever song you like, it's, it's all yours. Personalize it away. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote in your Missouri Arts Council description that lending a neuroscientific lens to your own dancing has given you fresh insight into your own brain-body connection, which you use to help others investigate their own movement potential. And I'm curious... What are some of the insights you've had about your own practice through doing this work? Yeah, well, I also teach dance courses at WashU, and I infuse the neuroscience background into a lot of the work I do. And it's easy to uh, do that in terms of rhythm and how we think about movement timing and sequencing, all of which... Um, I know how to do in my body without thinking about it whatsoever, but then to explain it cerebrally to some students and really enlighten them, it can justify some of the feelings that they already have like understood in their body to give that scientific background to it. And yeah, I really try to weave all of the neuroscience and the movement together as best I can. I believe that the two complement each other. In all of my studio practice, I feel like every semester I'm sort of developing new ways of moving through the space and thinking about how do I share this with the students. For instance, grounding into the floor. I've started teaching more floor work than I ever did before in an effort to find release of some of the tension in the body, for instance. So giving into the floor. And I used to teach very upright classes. Now I'm like, oh, let's be on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it, that we all have these bodies, but none of us have an instruction manual. Mm -hmm. And so we use them wrongly so much of the time. And when you start working with a yoga teacher or a dance teacher or a physical therapist and they say, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, gosh, have you how long have you been doing that? You see all these things that we do wrong and these bad habits we develop and how it influences everything, how we think, how we're able to move through the world. And yeah, we don't get taught how to do it properly early in our life. That's a great point. And a lot of what I teach, you're making me remember to say this, is that going back to the basics, and I talk about it from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, which is not my idea. This is coming from other people who have thought about this for hundreds of years, but kind of starting as like a baby in the womb and thinking about the primary curve of the spine and then lifting the head and finding the secondary curves of the lumbar and cervical spine. So I I talk a lot about like trying to break out of the habits, as you suggested, and finding the natural way we started out. So what what is our base? 
and what is useful, what is efficient, and what do we not need and we can shed and let go of. And that takes time and effort. Certainly, I have habits that I'm still working (laughs) on. (laughs) Uh, I have a ballet teacher in New York, and every once in a while, I zoom into her class, and she says, oh, the pelvis. (laughs) Oh, man. That's a tricky part of the body. (laughs) I know. It's so complicated. (laughs) So last year, you received an $85,000 grant from the National Endowment for the Arts for a project titled Graceful Gate, Community-Based Ballet to Improve Walking and Balance Among Older Women. And I feel like this is something that I should definitely be paying attention to. Give us a quick overview before we finish of this study. Thanks. Yes. Graceful Gate. So this was a study that we actually finished up data collection on this past summer. We had classes for two summers in a row, and that way we could keep class sizes fairly small. So the idea of this study was to see if ballet, classical ballet that's modified for older ladies, older women, could help with gait, balance, and quality of life. And we compared this to a wellness class. So our control intervention was a thoughtfully designed wellness class about a variety of health topics. When I wrote the grant, COVID had just set in and I thought, well, by the time I get the grant, of course, COVID will be over and we will be doing ballet classes in person. It all ended up being over Zoom and that had a lot of unique challenges to face as well. Um, This was in collaboration with a former dancer from New York whom I knew there named Vanessa Woods. She runs a organization here in St. Louis. It's in its 10th year now, and it's called Vitality in Motion. I had gotten in touch with her at some point when we discovered that we both lived in St. Louis now. And I went to observe one of her classes, and it was fabulous. And I thought, well, we should be studying this. So she was really on board, game to try it. She taught all the classes. She did the wellness classes and the ballet classes in both waves. And we... um, also tried to recruit people from historically underrepresented areas of St. Louis. I really thought this would happen in a community center somewhere. And instead, I got people from the community center to get on their computers, which was fine. Um, I do hope that one day we can do it in person. I've been analyzing the results of this study. And it was interesting. What we found is that over Zoom, ballet classes were really, really loved but also the wellness classes were really popular. So by and large, um, we saw improvements in gait and balance, not huge improvements. I think it was a little bit hard to maybe work quite as hard as we might in person, but we did see improvements in both groups, which is not what we expected. We thought ballet would be better, <laughs> but this is really exciting that you can actually like meet with a group of women and make significant changes in your lives based on all of the information that you're sharing and the community that you're developing. And I actually think that both both classes were really successful and people wanted to continue them by and large. And I'm excited to see where the next step of this research goes. Um, this was exciting because in spite of all the research on tango for Parkinson's and all of the research about dance interventions for older adults, there was almost no research on ballet. Huh. It's surprising. You'd think that lots of people yeah. would study ballet. It's kind of always considered, I always thought of it as like the base, right? The structure. It's this like very westernized art form, but we've all studied it because we all have to have our base ballet training. 
but there were almost no research studies on it whatsoever. So it's an underexplored area and yeah, I'm glad that we were we had the opportunity to study it. Well, maybe you'll bring it to Columbia. That would be fun. I'd like to sign up for that. <laughs> you know, because it ended up being over Zoom, my mom wanted to do it. <laughs> Vanessa and I have actually talked about, well, this doesn't have to, if we're going to do this virtually, this can be anywhere. <laughs> so yes, I will let you know. Well, to find out more about Eleanor Harrison, her choreography, her performances, and the science behind her work, visit her website at eleanorharris.com. And that's spelled E-L-I-N-O-R-Harrison.com. And Eleanor, I'm sure you're back in Columbia pretty often to see your parents, Phil and Jan Harrison. And I know you delivered the annual Carlos and Laura Perez Mesa lecture back in 2019 about your research. But I hope we might get to hear you talk or see you dance here again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much for making time to chat today. It has been delightful and so interesting. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. It often takes just one person to set someone on a lifelong artistic journey. And usually that person is an art teacher, a teacher who truly embraces the reality that art isn't just about representationally painting the world we see around us, but about exploration, empathy, expression, and giving voice to our inner emotions through imagery, shape and colour. For muralist Christine Reitzel, it was a homeschool high school art teacher who opened up the art world for her, who said, hey, it's totally fine to love all the weird modern stuff. Do what makes you happy. But that was easier said than done for the teenage Reitzel, who grew up in an extreme religious household in which psychological abuse, manipulation and patriarchal control left no room for artistic exploration or growth. The weird modern art she loved could only ever be hidden in notebooks under her bed. It took time for Christine to deconstruct from her parents' belief system and believe her own way back to art. For Christine, art is therapy that helps her unpack past traumas, doubts and insecurities and provides a path of discovery to her true self. She worked as a photographer for a while, but quickly felt burnt out. And it was a chance conversation with the owner of Branson's Skate World Roller Rink about designing a mural for their 300 foot long rink wall that was the spur her artistic career needed. Today, she's a sought after muralist and has completed multiple murals in southern Missouri and has worked as far away as Indiana. She's a member of the Southern Missouri Arts Connection and serves on the board for Hollister Parks and Recreation Department. She is, she says, passionate about contemporary art, inspiring young and underprivileged artists, interior design, coffee, cats and cosplay. And for the next few minutes, Christine Reitzel is my guest. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you, Diana. I love that whilst the world is full of art school graduates whose art has to take a back seat to non-artistic careers, you, a fully self-taught artist, are out there making a living from your art. Do you think an arts career is mostly about being fearless or single-minded? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I believe that because of my upbringing and my insecurity, and lack of community and mentorship was the biggest reason why it took me a long time to believe that I could be a full-time artist, which is why if I see a little kid drawing, I tell him like, don't stop, keep drawing, keep doing it. If it makes you happy, just keep doing it. 
<laughs> no matter what your parents say. <laughs> I think little kids love drawing until a point when they don't, when suddenly they go, oh, well, that doesn't look like a tree. So therefore, I can't do it any longer. That idea of being able to explore in a non-representational way is something that I don't feel like I had an access to when I was growing up. But you had an art teacher that helped you do that, right? I did. And when I sat down in that class and she started with the modern art movement, particularly abstract expressionism after the war, I was like, I have found my home. <laughs> um, and I, I've made some pretty cool stuff in that art class. And I, I think both of my parents are somewhat creative, good at writing and music. But anytime that I would talk to them or show them my art, it was, oh, God gave you that gift. And oh, it just runs in the family. And so because I didn't feel like it was me truly doing something different, it, it didn't feel very validating. And mm. it didn't give me a lot of encouragement to keep moving forward, right? Because I was so afraid of judgment. And so I've rarely ever tried anything weird or different because I was a people pleaser because of the trauma. And that really held me back. But now I'm using it in a positive way to push my art forward, if that makes sense. Tell me about that first art teacher. What was she like? Her name was Emily. And it was kind of strange because we met her and her family while we were in a church turned cult in Bristol, Tennessee. And she had an amazing um, broad skills I got to see a lot of her art in her own home. And when my mom found out that she was going to be offering homeschool art classes at a local church, she was like, well, I can't teach my daughter's art. You, know, <laughs> you can't really teach art from a book. You have to get your hands dirty. So what I loved about Emily is that she taught, you know, okay, today we're going to learn about Kandinsky or we're going to learn about de Kooning. And then we would learn how to paint like them. And that just validated that inner child of, I want to get messy. I want to get, I want to experiment. I want to feel something and feel connected to these masters. So I don't know. It was just like so incredible. And unfortunately I can't find this art teacher on the internet, Oh no! Um, but I, I know it's really sad, but I, I think she would be really proud that I stuck with art and that I'm doing it full time. You write on your website, my thoughts on art is it's not complicated, but for many people, it feels really complicated because so much of art is about letting go of expectations, not being afraid of failing, trying and then trying again. And for most of us, that is really complicated. Do you think that your strength to break free from your upbringing is a component of why you're so successful artistically? I think so. Um as I move forward in my art career, the more I can start to relate to the masters. I think for a lot of people like me nowadays, we're comparing ourselves to these young, attractive artists on TikTok and YouTube who make really good content. Mm. But I don't think that their art is going to be in the history books. And so when we're seeing these cool young artists with millions of followers, it feels very defeating that we're not getting current validation while we're young, when really a lot of the masters really didn't become who they were until they were much older and had been painting for decades. And so for me, I'm, you know, I'm going to be 33 next month. And for a long time, I was comparing myself to everyone around me living in the moment, or at least, I mean, everyone around me is in like people on the internet and feeling like I was, I missed, I missed that 
open window of going to art school, traveling, getting artists in residence, like I missed it. When really, if I think about it, I'm just beginning. I'm just starting out my art career. And at this point forward, I am in control of whatever I do, which is very freeing. That is so interesting that the liberation, the equalization of people potentially through the internet, everyone has access to everything, that that you don't see that as liberating, that actually it's just it's overwhelming that this opportunity for everyone to be out there and showing their work and creating is is minimizing real art in some way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I'm very happy that I live in the age of the internet because Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, I have been able to be basically 100% self-taught, at least, you know, now that I'm moving forward. And I see so many incredible images. I can access almost any artist's work on the internet, which I can then save for later when I'm struggling with creativity or, or inspiration, you know, versus like back in the day, I would have to go to a library and, and collect it, you know, do lots and lots of sketching and stuff like that. Whereas now it's so easy to get inspiration everywhere and anywhere. And I think a lot of people get overwhelmed. They're almost like overstimulated yeah. and, then, and then they're almost defeated immediately. Whereas like, I feel like I thrive more within limitation. So yeah, it's just, we have to adapt to our time. And of course, 50 years from now, looking back, who knows what the <laughs> 2020s, the 2020 art movement is what, you know, what's going to stand out and what's going to be forgotten. It's, it's very interesting, but I'm fascinated by that. Me too. I often ask gallery owners, like, what do you think this era is going to be famous for? And it's impossible to say because nobody knew that ABEX, abstract expressionism was going to be a big thing during the 1950s. It was only in yeah. with hindsight that you saw what the trends were. Exactly. Yeah. Your work is incredibly vibrant. Your colors are super bold. There are lots of cute cats, balloon dogs, hummingbirds, retro references like cassette tapes and arcade games and unicorns wearing 3D glasses. <laughs> lots of reference to space travel and, and NASA in a few of your works and layers of eye candy imagery connected through this riot of saturated colors. And I'm curious about the stream of consciousness that goes into your work and whether you are mostly compelled by imagery or, or story, what compels your direction? Well, I think when I first started out my mural career formally, you know, four years ago, I never, at least consciously, was like, oh, I am going to paint this because blah, blah, blah. It was just, you know, because people would ask me, what does it mean? Why did you paint it? And I'm like, I don't know. I just like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but now, you know, going through therapy and, and doing some inner child healing, I think a lot of that imagery comes from, you know, for example, the Skate World Project was... I call it my Sistine Chapel uh, <laughs> because it was my first mural and it was, it's huge. I mean, that skate rink owner got a steal. Nowadays, it'd be like a $40,000 mural right. and he got it for, you know, 12 bucks an hour. <laughs> um, but he gave me a chance and I, I owe him my life for that. But I grew up going to that skate rink and I learned how to skate there. I'd go there every week. And so I immediately knew what I was going to paint. Stuff that kids like stuff that old people would like that brings back that nostalgia of a skate rink, like arcade games and hockey and a disco ball. Um, 
that stuff is really easy for me to come up with because it's stuff that kids like. And I think inside I am still a child. I mean, I have a, a pink unicorn tattoo on my neck and people comment on that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going through my my rebellious <laughs> phase in my 30s. And I, I think that's really funny. But nowadays I'm trying to focus more on fine arts and really painting stuff that makes people think, but it can have like a dark edge to it. But also I still want to use the bright colors and a bubbly things like mirrors, gold leaf, shiny stuff. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. It's, <laughs> it's definitely my aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, because I think when people think of art inspired by religious trauma, they're imagining somebody killing God. Whereas like the show that I did last year that was all about my spiritual healing was some religious imagery, but it still had a Christine style to it, which is bright, bold, colorful, feelings of happiness, but also a little bit, ah, I'm uncomfortable. This is really neat. But also like, what is this supposed to be? What is this trying to tell me? Like, it makes people have to like, stare at it for a few moments. And so when I made my labels for my show, I talked about my story and why I made this piece. And that that solo show that I did changed my life. And it was the very first time that I had created a, a body of work that truly felt like I'm putting my entire life and experiences out into the public to potentially be judged and be misunderstood and get negative feedback. And that was more difficult than creating the work in and of itself. Um, so my whole artist statement about the show was, I'm a recovering people pleaser. I don't know what my beliefs are, but obviously religion is very important to most of humanity. And becoming an atheist just because I'm traumatized from the church doesn't mean you're actually going to heal. And this is really important to me. And so I had joined a spiritual trauma therapy group online, which was insanely helpful. And they knew that I was doing a show, but that was the most, the most difficult thing that I ever had to do, but it empowered me so much of like, I do feel like a real artist. I do feel like I can now make work with more meaning. And the whole reason why I resisted putting meaning into my work or being inspired by my experiences was because of judgment, because I had felt judged my entire life. And now, because I've worked through a lot of that trauma, I have people coming into my studio. You know, I'm in a, a very public studio where people can come in every day and see my work. And I do get a lot of attitude, sassy remarks, um, people feeling attacked by my work, and it just slides off my back. And I, I just remind them, hey, you have an emotional reaction to my work. That's what art is all about. Right. Um, and I think that I've known this my entire life, but to actually experience it, it's like, oh, I get it. I get why some of my most favorite paintings of the 20th century were from artists that were going through depression. They were suffering. They were struggling. And struggling, suffering creates great art. And I'm learning to embrace problems, difficulty, hardships, relational issues. I'm learning that it's an opportunity to make incredible artwork. And I used to feel very like, oh, I can't, I could never paint 
when I was struggling. I could only paint when I was happy and I was doing well. And now I'm becoming the opposite and using it as like, as therapy. And I wish that someone had told me that years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had seen a really good example of that, which is why I'm so passionate about mentorship these days. So the show that you're talking about was at the Southern Missouri Arts Connection. The show had a great title. It was called The Disagreeable Giver. This is the one you're talking about, right? Yes. And you spent so long working on it. You prepped it for a year. Did you did you get the catharsis you wanted? You say it changed your life, but was it cathartic? It was. And I knew that I didn't want to half-ass it. I was like, I have the opportunity to not have to work full time. Life is good. I don't want to look back and be like, I know I could have done better. And so it was extremely difficult to, you know, when you work for yourself, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're an artist, and a lot of people don't take you seriously that what you do is work, it's really difficult to manage your time. And so I had to say no to a lot of things. I had to tell people, please don't bother me. Don't ask me about the work. It was all the work was going to be a surprise. I didn't show even my husband and my best friend the works in progress because their comments were going to crush me. And I did not want anyone's opinion or critique to change how the work was going to end up. I wanted the work to be extremely authentic to who I am, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not quite right, even if it's ugly to some people. That was my intention from the very beginning, which is why, you know, a year seems like a very long time. But for a solo art show with 15 to 20 pieces, it really does take a year of preparation to pull off an insanely good art show. Did your family see it? They did. Um, I got lots and lots of positive feedback. And I got some people that showed up and were supportive. And I think because I put it all out there on the line, I had and now usually in art shows I would not try to explain the work to the public but because I live in southwest Missouri it's the bible belt I wanted to talk about my experiences and everything that I wrote was not preachy and so you know I had a very good mentor of mine calm me down because I had so much anxiety um, about the opening night and she was like no one can judge or criticize you when you are speaking from your experiences. Right. And if they do, that's horrible. So after that, I had some people not really talk to me anymore. And um, I I think that was great. (laughs) (laughs) I looked online, but I mean, I can't see the works. I would love to see the show. Is it is it anywhere out there online? Or is it just all in your studio? You know, I have not been great about posting my work online. I am redoing my website as we speak because I'm applying to a bunch of residencies this month. And so I'm editing photos and going to put them on my website where, you know, it's going to be mostly my fine art is going to be featured and not so much murals. Okay, so I should just watch this space. Your website, and I guess therefore your artistic persona is Beauty From Light. Tell me what that means for you. Sure. Well, I've had that username since I was a teenager. And at the time I was doing photography, And I did one very short semester of photography at a small college. And the professor was talking about, you know, without light, there is no photograph and how important light is. And it's kind of common sense when you do photography, but to have someone explain it to you in such simple terms, it's like, well, duh. And so that's where 
the username came from. And I had just stuck with it all these years. And at this point, I'm like, unless I can come up with something more clever, I think I'll just stick with it, you know? Yeah, you spent years developing your brand. Just keep it. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) What does 2023 hold for you, Christine? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I'm not really big on New Year's resolutions, but over the winter, I've been like, you know what? I have done so much healing. Life is good. Finances are good. My marriage is great. And I want to focus on only my art career, which is why I'm applying to a bunch of artists and residencies. I have no idea what to expect. And I'm okay with that rejection, but I want to get more experience outside of Missouri. Um, I will always have roots here. I own a home here. I'm very involved in the community here. And the Branson Hollister area is extremely important to me. But contemporary art and public art is not very important where I live, Um, which is why I think residencies are amazing because I can get more uh, almost like a college type of experience, but with other people mid-career. And I want to travel more and, and have, you know, six to eight weeks only for the purpose of making art, which I, you know, I have a studio. This is what I do full time, but it is difficult. Life gets in the way where it's really hard to just, you know, shut the door to your studio and work for eight weeks straight, only focusing on art, which is why I think residency would be life changing for me. And, and in a way, preparing for my show last year was almost like me forcing myself to do a residency but sometimes, you know, when unless you have a deadline, it's difficult to make art, which is a big reason why back when I was starting out getting back into painting after high school, I made art solely for the purpose of putting it into shows because I had a deadline. I had to finish the piece of art. So I didn't have time to overthink it. And it, it wouldn't sit around long enough for me to hate it, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is my biggest advice to younger artists. Like, make garbage, make horrible art, but put it into shows, get it out there. You know, that's the most important thing is to just, just to make it. It's really a numbers game. You know, I need to be making thousands of pieces of art and not every piece of art that I'm going to make is a masterpiece. Well, I'm sure you will. And I'm so excited for what 2023 will bring. I hope maybe you'll pop back in here at the end of the year and tell us where you ended up, what residences you did and and what you've (laughs) taken away from the year. (laughs) Sounds good. I totally will. (laughs) You can check out the work of Christina Reitzel on her website at beautyfromlight.com. And if you are in Southern Missouri, look out for her work at Branson's Skate World, the Hook and Ladder Pizza company in Hollister and other spots throughout Hollister and Branson. Christine, thank you so much for sharing your bold colors and your really in-depth artistic journey with us this evening and just for making time to chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Were it not for photographers like my guest, Michael Munster, much of nature's abundance would go unnoticed by me for, as my husband says, I am an indoor cat or at least an urban cat. Michael Munster is most definitely an outdoor cat, a self-taught photographer of nature, landscape and wildlife based in Joplin. He set up his photography business, Green Heron Photography, in 2015 and has had four of his photographs featured in The Atlantic magazine's 30 Images of the Show Me State. 
His interest in photography dates back to 2000, when the work he produced with his Kodak digital point-and-shoot camera started getting compliments. So after a couple of years, he upgraded his camera to a Canon digital single-lens reflex camera, a DSLR, and figured he should get better acquainted with the world of photography, and so set off on a journey of self-teaching. Along the way, he added wide-angle telephoto and macro lenses to his ever more sophisticated cameras and also infrared filters. Michael says that he enjoys planning, setting up and taking a photograph and then having it turn out just as he expected, which definitely sets him apart from most of us who snap away with a cell phone and then feel disappointed with the results. And I am delighted to welcome Michael Munster to the show from his home in Joplin. Hello, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me. Do your photographs really always work out as planned? Not always, um, (laughs) but it's really great feeling when you have planned something out and then it actually turns out either as good as you're hoping or even better. But usually a lot of times it doesn't turn out way you plan it so (laughs) you took up photography seriously when you were i guess in your 20s what were your photography or art interests as a child i never really did photography when i was little or anything like that i did have like art classes in school like elementary and junior high high school i took a basic arts class where they allowed us to see like different types of art like painting drawing and experienced those. And then the following year, my junior year, I actually took ceramics for two semesters. But after my junior year high school, I didn't really explore art too much uh, since then until I started doing the photography. Well, you have a Bachelor of Arts degree in Communication and Media Studies from Missouri Southern State. And mm-hmm. over the years, I can see you've had a couple of jobs that involved writing. So I'm curious about your shift from wanting to tell stories in words to telling them in images? Because I think that is really a trait shared by many artists who Mm -hmm. experience the world in images. What was your journey from words to images? Well, it was just more, I think I feel a little bit more comfortable doing photography and telling with pictures than words. So it was just kind of more where I tried doing the writing and did okay with it, but just you just kind of graduate to what you feel more comfortable with and feel Mm. that you can do better. So There are, I guess, relatively few artists who are able to support themselves through their art. How did you take what started out as an amateur interest to a professional career? Big thing was I started off selling as like stock images. And that's where, like how the Atlantic ended up using my images. They purchased from a uh, full library. and, And so it was mainly started off with stock imagery and then I also have included selling as prints and merchandise and calendars and things like that and then I've actually had a couple of my images appear in some calendars. I noticed the stock photo section on your website and I'm curious how much of a moneymaker that is in the overall scheme of things and how within that world where there are so many people selling stock photographs how do you get noticed? I think the big thing with getting noticed is, one, having the best images, also photographing places that aren't really generally photographed. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of photo libraries 
I had kind of almost a monopoly over pictures of like the Grand Falls here in Joplin. And then also just you have to keep contributing every week, just keep adding more and more images. And then as a result, as you're adding images, you're getting more kind of like the algorithm for like something like Facebook or something where you're kind of getting top feed and that. There must be many, many times when you are out at a waterfall or watching a bird or surveying the beauty of a landscape when the moment feels transcendental. Choirs of angels, it's Mm -hmm. just beautiful. You're totally at one with the natural environment. And I wonder if you might recall some of those moments for us. Kind of one of the, I guess something like that happened to me last uh, October, I kind of got the privilege of seeing river otters in the wild for the first time. Mm. I've seen them in the zoo, but I've never seen them in the wild. And I had a feeling one of these days that we get to see them in the wild, but I was actually kind of surprised at the place and when I got to see them. And it was really special to be able to see you know, something like river otters out in the wild. And not only that being so close to me, to my house and that there was actually a park that I go to on a regular basis and so it was kind of real surprising and really a pleasure to see that. What works sell the best? I think the waterfalls are kind of the one of the popular ones. In fact actually that was the two images I saw to a um, calendar place uh, they were both uh, waterfalls one Grand Falls and then uh, another one in northwest Arkansas and then also for stock cityscapes, uh, basically a picture of like a city, uh, a skyline. In fact, my number one, I think, for stock is a uh, picture I took probably about 10 or so years ago. Uh, I was in Branson, and I went to a lookout and just took a picture. I wasn't really playing it too much. I was just, it was more kind of a uh, snapshot, but it features like Tamacoma in the foreground and then Tape Rock and you can actually see the Branson Bell and that's actually my number one pictures and I've seen it actually used multiple times in like different articles when they talk about Branson they usually a lot of times feature the image. Is that one on your website? Yes, it's actually under Other Works and then Branson. Well, to see the work of Michael Munster, visit his website at greenheronphoto.com. And Michael, thank you so much for sharing a little about your photographic journey with us and for making time to chat today. Thank you for having me on. The 4th of the December featured artist is a Kansas City keyboardist and producer called Eddie Moore. But unfortunately, we were not able to connect for this week's show. But he writes that his music represents his love for life, the good and the bad, but most of all, the freedom of expression. Eddie writes, I am a black American man born on the West Coast, raised in Houston, Texas, who never quite fit in, but always found my way. I thought we would close with a track from his 2022 album titled Intuition. This is Skate Park Days and you can link to more of his music via his website at eddiemoremusic.com.
Eddie Moore with Skate Park Days from his album Intuition. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, dancer Eleanor Harrison, muralist and fine artist Christine Reitzel, and photographer Michael Munster. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. Up next is two hours of jazz with Mr. T. Sharif, a.k.a. The Jazz Broker. So stay tuned to 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. I'll be back next week with more peaks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.